episode 136 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 2nd of August 2021. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. How's it going? Graham. Hello. And Will. Good evening. The 2nd of August. How can it possibly be August already? Well, we know it's August because there's not a huge amount going on in the news. It's been a bit quiet for the last couple of weeks. But we have got some things to talk about. The first one is a blog post from a few weeks ago from Tobias Bernard's GNOME blog that seemed to blow up. This was actually part four of a series of posts that he called Community Power that talked about how the GNOME project works and how you can contribute to it. But it was this part four and one specific part of it that really just exploded. I think helped by Jory's post on OMG Ubuntu about it. And the key phrase was, every preference has a cost. And it seemed to have just, I don't know, everyone just seems to lose their minds these days. I don't know if it's because it's too hot or we've been locked down too long or what. But I didn't get it at all. Like, obviously, this is how GNOME works. Like, they have slimmed it down to having very few preferences. And that's how GNOME is. Why was anyone surprised by this? Well, yeah, I agree with you, Joe. Um, But I think it's very difficult to comment as a as a KDE Plasma user, because, and I'm sure Phelan feels the same way, that this is yes. the reason why I choose Plasma. <laughs> <laughs> Their main point that they're making where the traditional desktop is dead, I find that GNOME with the most resource of, of any desktop, because, you know, if you ever look at a default desktop install, it's generally GNOME. They've got the largest user base. If you're taking that Ubuntu is that largest user base. I don't understand why they think that all these difficulties involved with giving people options. They, they assume that everybody must use the machine the exact same way. I don't use my machine the same way that Graham does. And, you know, we get on fine. And I don't understand why they think that everybody should use it the exact same way. And they're saying things like the traditional desktop is dead when desktop sales have gone up in the last year because of lockdown and people having to buy machines to actually get stuff done. What is this mystical device that they think that the GNOME, GNOME desktop is going to run on? I don't know what it is. And they keep going on about, you know, shell extensions are a niche thing. Yet the largest GNOME install, which we have to take is Ubuntu desktop, uses shell extensions to get it to a usable state. And I saw a really funny comment that a Redditor made where they said, so GNOME says, you know, you should contribute back up. So you go to contribute back up and they say, this doesn't meet the requirements of our <laughs> our vision. And therefore you make an extension. And that's what happens where people are fed up with the fact that they can't use the desktop the way they want to. Now, I might be wrong on this, but I'm reasonably sure that this is the same guy that wrote blog posts about why theming apps was a, such a bad idea uh, a few years ago now. And this, to me, just feels like an extension of that whinge that um, people are trying to do things with GNOME that the GNOME people don't want them to do. They want GNOME to look like GNOME, quack like GNOME, and just be GNOME. And anyone who thinks differently is therefore wrong. And this this attitude, which is driving people away from GNOME in droves, because it would make sense if the decisions they made about the design and about the settings were logical and met people's needs, then people would 
generally be accepting of that, but they don't. They gloss over a huge amount of usability with uh, excuses like, well, it, it's too hard or it, people don't do it this way. And I think that's wrong. And I think that uh, people do want to have access to these settings. People do want to be able to tweak things in exactly the way they want them to be. People do want to be able to theme their apps, their desktop. Uh, and hence, KDE is wiping the floor with them as far as I'm concerned. Allow me to play devil's advocate then. Now, I would have agreed with you until I spoke to Sean Davis on Late Night Linux Extra 19. That was back in April this year. And I was talking to Sean about why he is moving on from XFCE development into elementary OS development and what attracts him to that. And what he told me was that if you take a project like XFCE, anytime anything changes there is this huge outcry and demand for there to be an option to revert to the old way of doing things. Now, reductio ad absurdum, the Plasma desktop. Anytime anything changes, there's always an option to revert back to the the old way of doing it. Take, for example, they changed it so it was Windows style on the panel for the, the window buttons. And that's horrendous. And failing you change that back to the, the old way of doing it, right? Now, that's all well and good, except that every preference has a cost. And that's what he was getting at here. Yeah, but I don't understand how a desktop environment that has less resources than GNOME doesn't see that issue. Maybe they're just better at organizing themselves and testing. Because, like, is is GTK horribly broken? Because you, you bring up XFCE, well, maybe GTK is really poor at doing these things. I don't know. No, what Sean explained to me was that you end up having this option there that no one who's developing it actually gives a shit about because the default is obviously what the devs want it to be. But if they have to then support this legacy code, that both distracts from the newer code and also ultimately gets neglected. So there may well be bugs that are having to be fixed in Plasma to support these old preferences that are taking development time away from developing the new stuff, the new direction that they want to go in. I think that's a false dichotomy. I don't believe that it is either you have to have a setting for absolutely everything or you have to have a setting for nothing. I think that there is a a happy medium. People can make informed decisions about things that are options and things that are, I don't know, CLI options or things that just are not options at all. The argument is presented as either you have these choices or you don't have them at all, and and I don't believe that. Yeah, and you know, people saying in KDE where you must change all the options is like this idea that my God, once you log into KDE, you have to go into a fifty-page questionnaire as to how to set up your desktop is a lot of shite as well. It's you know, if you want to move things around, you don't need to download a separate non-support application to configure dot .files in the back end like you have to do with GNOME Tweaks. They say, well, I don't know whether you want the menu at the bottom or the top or the side. You choose that. That doesn't break the entire paradigm of how the desktop works. You just get to choose where things go because we don't believe that everybody should know where every single thing should be. Well, I return to my original point, and that is GNOME is for people who want to just use the defaults Plasma is the complete other end of that spectrum. And then there's a few other desktops in in between. 
I don't think that's fair because I think you're trying to say that gnome is for people who won't be able to change anything, realistically speaking, the way that they think. And if you have made a change, they might take that away from you. It's like it's this constant eating away at your ability to choose the way your computer works. Whereas KDE says, use it as is or make changes, do whatever you want. And we're not going to take it away. It's not an active sort of war against their own users. I don't understand that. I've always taken it that Gnome's got a very kind of build it and they will come kind of attitude to their desktop. Um, I suppose a little bit like Steve Jobs and iOS and that this is what we're committed to designing. We can't deviate from this because it basically dilutes the user experience that we're trying to share and create. And I do respect that, except for when it comes to trying to use it and it just doesn't work in the way that I want it to work. Um, and, you know, it could be that there are other types of people out there who do enjoy this limited amount of options. They don't like the distraction of being able to configure things and it works for them. But I find it, it those kind of people are certainly rare in expressing their opinion. In Steve Jobs' defence, he did kill Adobe Flash, essentially, with that attitude. So we owe him that much. But Gnome isn't quite Apple, is it, when it comes to uh, brand power and market dominance? No, it's not. And, and you know, I personally don't think the design paradigm is a big enough incentive for people to start using it. But Will, you're using it every day, albeit with some tweaks that Ubuntu have made. No, I'm not. What, you're not using it anymore? No, I'm using the Mac on the desktop all the time. I don't like using the Mac. I find it difficult. I find that there's a lot of features missing. But I don't miss GNOME that much. When I get a new laptop uh, towards the end of this year, then I will get a ThinkPad, I will stick Linux on it, and I will almost certainly be running Plasma. Yeah, in your face, gnome bastards. Or XFCE. Yeah, I think that's the more sensible option. Come on. I, yeah. Don't be ridiculous. You want it to be usable. To be fair, I do think KD Plasma has got a long way to go in picking defaults and doing the right thing to present users with a coherent user interface from the very beginning. But I think it's getting better, though. It is, and it can be made good. And that's the problem we have with GNOME, is that it can't be made on what they want it to be. Yeah, but the thing is, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to configure KDE. You can go into the control panel and literally search in there for, oh, I don't know, resolution, and then it'll bring up the various bits. So I don't even know where half the things are these days inside that configuration tool, because they keep, you know, they change them around to make them more logical. So I go in there and I search and then I type it in and, it, and I do exactly that on Windows because I'm not very familiar with Windows. So if I go into the control panel Windows, I do exactly that same thing and it just doesn't work quite as well. Well, think about this. When was the last time you actually changed anything on KDA? Probably a long time ago because you just back up your dot files and restore it and it all just goes back to how you had it in the first place. No, not necessarily true. I do go in there every time there's a new version to try and figure out what might have changed or what got added or new or whatever. Well, fair enough. But to me, it just seems like at least since Gnome Shell came out, it's like it or lump it. But I honestly think that a lot of people want that. There must be a reason, and we've talked about this before, but there must be a reason why Gnome is the default on basically all of the biggest desktop distros. There must be a reason. And that's because if you can't change anything, then it's far easier to support. Surely that's got to be a big motivator here. It just seems like if you want to tweak GNOME, don't fucking use GNOME. Use Plasma or XFCE or Mate or 
Budgie or whatever. Like, there's a million desktops out there, seemingly. It just says to me that as a fragile desktop, if you just can't change things the way you want them to, if you must deal with the way some other guy from somewhere else's vision on what their desktop is and foists upon you, and you have to stick with that, it, it just seems like that must be a very fragile base. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and TrustRadius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. Another interesting post is from Graham Lee's blog, and this is called My Proposal for Scaling Open Source. Don't. And the thesis of this is that we shouldn't be chasing huge success and trying to take on the likes of Facebook and Google and Slack. We should just concentrate on making cool stuff and eventually people will find out about it if it's good enough and that we should be sort of satisfied with success in all its forms, whether that success is just a dozen people using a bit of software. I really liked the gist of this blog post, and I agree with it immensely. There's the that old adage, I can't remember who said it, about um, if you sit by the side of the river, you see the bodies of your enemies float past you. Well, I think that that's what's happening in the commercial software world. Let's take Windows 10, for example. Oh, sorry, Windows. Let's think about Windows 11, I should say. They're doing this weird transform between the old world of Windows XP where you had a control panel and this new world of Windows 11, I assume, where everything is more like a web page, they've really spoiled the usability of that. They've got a lot of dark patterns in there that, I, I don't know, trick you into receiving more adverts on the screen or they hide things away where you can't quite see them. Those sorts of behaviours are what's going to drive people away from those applications. You look at other uh, applications on mobile phones where they've got a lot of swiping going on. You know, left swipe and right swipe and up and down all do slightly different things. And these disjointed, muddled interfaces and this sort of dark patterns where they try and drive you to see more adverts in your start bar or your screensaver or whatever it is, these are the things that I think are going to push people away from those platforms, looking for alternatives. And then open source is there, just appealing to people without trying to sell all their data. And that is the most valuable thing that we can offer people. Is the argument against this that we should be at least trying to compete on their level? Like if you look at what Mozilla has tried to do, maybe not succeeded, and we don't want to bash Mozilla too much here, but they are genuinely trying to compete with Google and Microsoft in the browser space. 
they're not just attempting to make some minority bit of software that a few people will use. Do we not need both, maybe? We need to genuinely go after them, but also be satisfied with smaller projects. I think this is a hugely challenging problem. I think open source software was built for one set of problems, usually scratching a personal itch and solving specific small scale problems. And it's been used as the foundation for all of those projects that you mentioned earlier on and all of the big corporations that have now become so um, dominant. But chasing a specific problem, such as coming up with an open source or open equivalent to Twitter, for example, is something that open source wasn't designed to do. It's a bit like trying to fit some, you know, it's it's trying to fit a square peg into a, a circular hole. And so I do think you're, you're right that we should try and do something, but open source isn't necessarily going to succeed. I, 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 so I don't, it's a complicated problem and I don't know what the solution might look like. It has to have the advantages that made open source and free software successful without the disadvantages of nobody using it. <laughs> but it kind of comes back to that 1% of the desktop market share that Linux has. It's usually somewhere around that. I think I read today that uh, Steam had reached 1%. That, to me, still does look like success because that is still millions of people using Linux on their desktop. And just because we're at 1% and Microsoft's at whatever it is, ridiculous number, and, and Mac is, you know, 10% or whatever, that doesn't matter because as long as there are enough of us using it, and contributing to it and making it better and happy to use it. That is enough. That is success. The fact that I can record this with you guys, the fact that I can do Zoom meetings and Google Meet meetings and do all my email and all of the stuff that I have to do and, and spreadsheets and all that on a Linux desktop, that is success. I completely agree. And, you know, Linux and open source has utterly transformed the tech industry in every way, that's success as well. Yeah, even if that success means that it's enabled companies doing things that we don't like, I'm not going to say evil, but let's just say certain big companies do stuff that we don't necessarily like, and it is all powered or mostly powered by open source. That is success in of itself as well. It's kind of being a victim of your own success. But I think we're at a point where those platforms are so closed. It's it's similar in a way to computing in the early 90s when Linux started. And I suppose that's what we're trying to think of is there an open solution that we can apply some of the principles that have been so successful for Linux to, you know, web frameworks or software as a service or whatever it happens to be, which actually has been successful if you look at something like Kubernetes. But it's trying to look at it in that way. Is there anything we can take from the Linux of free software community and make a success of it while opening up a platform. I think it all works in theory, except until you have to start working with others. And most of those companies don't want to play ball with each other. They want to, they have the whole, you know, you must crush all your enemies and that's it. If we all had fully open standards and, you know, you could say, well, I'm going to use LibreOffice as my file format for Office shares, that'd be great. But invariably, Microsoft will use their format and somebody else will use theirs and won't make it available for open source to, to use. And then we're left out because we're a lower number like usual. 
There's one quote from the blog post that I really like, which is growth hacking and lowest common denominator experiences are their problem. So we should avoid making them our problem too. I think that's really the nub of the issue here. Allow the competitive software market of closed source software to basically tear themselves to pieces, trying to compete with each other, trying to uh, lock in their users to their proprietary platforms. Let them do that. And we can just sit back and, and let them destroy each other. On to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to find out more about it, latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to get in contact, latenightlinux.com slash contact. And check out Late Night Linux Extra 27. This is the third one I've done with Gary and Chris, and it was pretty cool. We were responding to a bit of feedback from people. So uh, do check it out. I'll put a link in the show notes. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash late night Linux and sign up for a seven-day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash latenightlinux. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash late night Linux. So, Phelim, it seems that you're famous. I am. Yeah, you were interviewed or cited at least in this article, Cracking Open the Android slash iOS Grip on Smartphones and the Mobile Internet. Yeah, we had an email into the show by Robert Guile, the guy who wrote the article. And um, yeah, I think it's a really good summary of the state of play that's right now, how we've effectively a duopoly. And, you know, I gave input to him, you know, about what I do, how I, I run my stuff. I mean, he didn't use everything and that's that's fine. I actually have seen his blog separately on his own blog about how he's actually trying to give it a shot as well. So it'd be interesting to see how he gets on with that. But, you know, he gets... Some good interviews from the likes of Pinephone um, and E, who are, or I presume that's how you say it, uh, Gail Duval's project anyway, where the the sort of open Android version of phones. I think it's good to bring it to people's attention. I've always said this. I don't think it's necessarily for everybody to do. I think if you've gone to a smartphone, you're kind of stuck because you'll be so used to using various apps from all the vendors and such that it's quite hard to get back out of that. But uh if perhaps you're stuck with a what's those dumb phones called <laughs> and now you're you're looking to go one level up then you can come to our world it'll be great yeah i remember the first time i spoke to you on air was about how you manage without google apps essentially on your phone yeah and yeah, i really i would hate to have to go to the android store where you know you go looking for one application there's 75,000 various versions of the same thing but you know minus one of them is the only one that doesn't have spyware that's trying to get all access to all the stuff that you didn't think it needed but it, it must have access to your contact list as a calculator 
I don't think that is a fair representation of That of is an absolute <laughs> fair representation. Well, the point is that you don't know what it's like, do you? I do. I used it for about a month <laughs> and I absolutely hated it. And I literally wouldn't install applications. All right. Well, this was 10 years ago, though. Yeah, but I would I would look through all the things that it would require and, you know, I go, why do I want all this? And I don't, I just do not know what this is doing. As I made the point in the article, it's like, you've got a camera a microphone on 24-7, probably within a meter of you at all times, with a GPS system that can be activated remotely if they need to, depend on the various firmwares that the phone might have. And how we don't let this be, the one item that we have that is not open in any way, shape, or form is just beyond me. Like my, your hulking great 586 chewing dust in the corner has got a fully open firmware probably at this point on your motherboard but no no the thing that you're uh, is with you listing all the time doesn't well you're a dreamer failing you're a dreamer delusional yes <laughs> will you found an article about emulating the ibm pc on an esp32 yeah this just blew my mind uh it just seems incredible that you can emulate an IBM PC on a microcontroller. Now, this thing is is extraordinary. I've seen the videos. I haven't tried to running it myself, but I've seen the videos, and it is running Windows 3. It's running FreeDOS. It's running a few games on there. It all seems to hang around this one central library called FabGL, which is a sort of game engine library for the ESP32. And this library has... Um, a VGA output with 64 colors off of the pins on this microcontroller. It's got a PS2 keyboard and mouse input. It's got a graphics library and some, some other uh, bits and pieces in there and a terminal. And this is like the core of this um, PC emulator running on, well, I, I say a microcontroller, but really this thing is quite impressive when you look at the specs of it. The ESP32 is like the, the next version of the ESP8266, which was the first microcontroller with embedded Wi-Fi. It came out, I, I don't know, 10 years ago, there or thereabouts. And at the time, just like exploded into the hardware hacking scene because you could suddenly embed Wi-Fi in all of your projects. Um, so this ESP32 has got, I think, a dual core. It's got 320K of RAM, uh, 448K of ROM. It's got Wi-Fi built in. It's got Bluetooth 4, possibly 5, and Bluetooth Low Energy built in, 34 GPIOs and um, you know various other buses built in. So when you think about it, a, uh, a a dual core processor running at 160 megahertz with 320k of RAM isn't actually that small when you think back to um, IBM PC days. I suppose it's like like half a PC, something like that, um, memory wise, but probably three or four PCs CPU processing clockwise. But nevertheless, here is a microcontroller from today running software from yesterday. Just seems uh, amazing. I've just looked on Amazon. You can get a three pack for 28 quid of these ESP32s. I could get that tomorrow if I wanted. To be honest, that, that sounds like that has better driver support and a much better processor than the Olivetti 386 <laughs> I had running Windows 3.1 in the early 90s. So, But does it have a turbo button? Oh, mine didn't even have a turbo button. It wasn't until a few years later on the 486 that had that. And it probably uses, a, I don't know, a hundredth of the power, electrical power, that a PC would have used. It's probably even less than that. Mm, yeah. 
Okay, this episode is sponsored by Entroware. Go to entroware.com. Entroware sells computers with Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate pre-installed. They've got a range of desktops, laptops, and servers, and most parts are configurable, so you can pick the CPU, RAM, and storage that's right for you. If you can't find exactly what you want, then do contact them, and they'll work with you on a bespoke solution that's perfect for your needs. They ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. And if you do buy one of their machines, there's a little drop-down at checkout, and you can select late-night Linux so they'll know that we sent you. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. A quick mention for the Web at 30 exhibition. Will, you brought this up. Yeah, so I think this comes from the Computing History Museum in Cambridge, sponsored by Raspberry Pi, also in Cambridge, and uh, other, other, I assume, Cambridge-based technology companies celebrating 30 years of the web. Uh, it's an installation inside the sort of main shopping centre in Cambridge, running from the 26th of July to the 3rd of September, from 10am to 5pm, and you can go there and experience animated GIFs and embedded <laughs> MIDI and flying toasters and things like they used to be in the good old days. No, you won't, because you didn't install real player. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I'd forgotten about that. <laughs> On Linux, that was such a nightmare. It's all right. Flash was just the best solution to that problem. I remember having to use Compiz to zoom in on Flash videos to get pseudo full screen Flash (laughs) video because my hardware wasn't capable of running actual full screen Flash. Let's do a quick KDE corner then. The first one, Plasma Mobile 2107. Quite a few updates to all the applications that are there. I mean, I think... There's nothing major there as such, but I think it's really good to see that they're still working away hard on this, which is good for the likes of the Pine phone and my future phone, I hope. (laughs) Well, you'll be able to use KDE Connect on your Windows 10 PC now. Thank goodness. Fully licensed. (laughs) Not only that, but also they're trying to uh, redo the uh, Mac version as well. So happy days for all of our friends in proprietary land. No, it is good though, isn't it? No, yeah, of course it's good. It's a, it's an absolutely excellent piece of software. Um, and I use it like nonstop. It, it's really, really powerful. It's really handy. And it's probably the most reliable way I have of transferring files back and forth between my phone because I have absolutely zero look with a cable attached storage on my phone for some reason. KDE EV, which is the non-profit organization, is looking for a project lead slash event manager for an environmental sustainability project. Yeah. Now, in all fairness, this is really only if you're in Germany or in Berlin specifically, if you're not going to work remote. But I think it's going to be working with the German government. So to be honest, it's probably a narrow field. But uh, just in case somebody was interested, it's a, it's a, it's a part-time role. And uh, maybe people want to give that a shot. Right. Well, link to all that in the show notes then. We better get out of here. We'll be back next time when we'll be covering Bogdy Linux and some of your feedback and all sorts of stuff. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. <laughs>